to What About Us, the podcast in which we discuss policies that affect rural Tennesseans. In our last episode, political science student Bailey Miner talked about the Constitution and the articles separating and balancing power between the three branches of government. We also discuss how little the Constitution says about impeachment, as well as the two impeachment cases in this century, actually only one since Nixon resigned before any vote. That the colonists in the 1700s were coming from a background of kings, dictators, and thugs. They wanted to be able to remove a leader from office for, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote, not daring to imagine what those could be. Today we discuss the probable thinking behind the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights, a militia and the right to bear arms. Whereas we had only a few examples of impeachment, we have much history, emotion, controversy, and legislation when it comes to guns. So much that we will divide our discussion um, into two episodes, one discussing federal legislation and a second podcast just for Tennessee. And I have the perfect person to talk with for both. Beth Jocelyn Roth is the founder and executive director, as well as policy director, of Safe Tennessee Project, a grassroots organization dedicated to addressing the epidemic of gun-related injuries and gun violence in Tennessee. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. You have been involved in gun safety since Sandy Hook, coming up on seven years on December 14th. That was a life-changing event for you, wasn't it? Uh, It was. Um, I certainly been aware that gun violence was a problem in our country and had watched the news of Columbine and uh, the Aurora shooting and so many others um, with sort of a detached um, sadness. But when Sandy Hook happened, um, it hit home for me because my children were young at the time. They're teenagers now, but at the time they were young. They attended a small elementary school, uh, very much like Sandy Hook. Um, and uh, as the, the news continued to come in and, and the, the details of what had happened um, were being reported, I just felt sick to my stomach. Um, it really had a profound impact on me. Uh, Ten days after Sandy Hook, it was Christmas Eve, and I noticed under the Cookies for Santa plate My daughter, who was seven at the time, the same age as some of the children who had been killed at Sandy Hook, um, my daughter had put a note to Santa under the the cookie plate, and it read, Dear Santa, please take some of my toys to heaven and give them to the boys and girls from Connecticut. I wish the gunmen had thought how sad the mommies and daddies would be seeing presents under the tree that no one will ever open. And uh, that, that note and that moment reading that note uh, really had a profound impact on me. And I thought, um, what kind of country am I raising my kids in? And then I thought, what kind of parent am I if I know that there's this terrible problem that troubles my children and I don't do anything about it? And that really um, changed my life and put me on the path that I'm on now. Mm -hmm. You've done a lot. Um, Since then, what have you learned and what have you done with that knowledge? Uh, well, after after Sandy Hook, um, I wanted to learn everything that I could learn about 
gun violence in uh, our country. Um, I wanted to understand more why nothing could be done to address it, why there was such a stalemate, uh, what research was out there in terms of what evidence-based policies um, were the most effective. Um, So I started to research. I like to research. I'm a reader. I'm a researcher. Um, So I just, um, uh, just... just that's all I focused on for about a year. And I worked with a national organization um, for about a year. I learned a lot from them. Um, but what I really figured out was that rather than being an, an activist, what I really wanted to do was be more of an advocate. Um, and what I mean by that is really framing uh, the issue of gun violence as Uh, an issue of public health, which is what it is. It is an issue of public health. I wanted to try and take the politics out of the the debate and focus instead on the data and the statistics and the published peer-reviewed research um, and that is that that all led me to um, my decision to start the Safe Tennessee Project. Okay, and you also talk to elected officials and give advice to um, other groups really across the country, not not just Tennessee. Right. No, I'm a member of the American Public Health Association. I have lectured at their um, annual conference. I have spoken to the Tennessee Public Health Association. I have led trainings um, for other gun violence prevention organizations. Um, I uh, I've done a lot. I get involved with a lot of different organizations that do the same kind of work that I do. We try and share resources, share ideas, um, and I'm always happy to to do that. Um, and I do work with elected officials. You know, my organization is a 501c3. We are not lobbyists. We do not endorse candidates or donate money or write legislation. Um, but what we do do is provide uh, information to policymakers. Um, we provide them with research Um, We provide them with data uh, specific to Tennessee, all in hopes of helping them make more informed policy decisions. I just like to remind my audience that I only get the best people to talk (laughs) with us. (laughs) But the Save Tennessee Project is is your baby. And uh, a couple things I want you to tell us uh, about your organization right right away because they're really important. They really strike strike a nerve of what you're trying to do. Yes. So we are uh, an organization. Um, We view the issue as an issue of public health, as I said before. Um, We are made up of physicians, academics, attorneys, um, suicide prevention uh, experts, domestic violence prevention advocates, um, and concerned citizens. Um, We respect the Second Amendment. We have gun owners that are members of our organization. We do not advocate confiscating people's guns. We see injuries and violence as a public health concern, not a political issue. Uh, We are nonpartisan. Um, We don't believe that exaggerating or using hyperbolic language 
or political rhetoric is useful or helpful in having these types of conversations. Um, They create knee-jerk reactions, which we do not feel are helpful. Um, What we believe uh, is helpful is focusing on the facts. Um, we feel that using, you know, hyperbol- hyperbolic language and, 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 and rhetoric um, actually stand in the way of effective action and, and finding common ground. Thank you, Beth, because um, several of those uh, we, I share with you on this uh, podcast that, that we want the information. We want good um, information um, that we don't believe in knee-jerk hysterics uh, doesn't do anything um, to help the problem and and we always have an action plan at the end so that the listeners and the people that they know and their families and that can act act you know um, realistically logically to not worsen the problem but to improve it whatever it is well and you know the the thing is I mean this is a very emotional issue people mm-hmm. feel very strongly about it and um, they can let their emotions get the better of them. I say that about people that are on my side of the issue and people who are on the other side of the issue. But what we really try and do is is take the emotion out and compartmentalize um, that and focus instead on the, the, the facts and the data and mm-hmm. the research. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Let me um, talk a little bit about history. Again, uh, my comments regarding the Second Amendment are from the, um, largely from the podcast Constitutional. That's a 2017 uh, discussion about different aspects of the Constitution uh, and, and the Bill of Rights from the Washington Post. Okay, 1600s, the 1600s in Britain, people were afraid of the military. There was lots of religious conflict. The 1500s, 1600s, we, we, we read about that. Kings, execu- executions, there were military coups and standing armies that would do the bidding of dictators, whether it was against parliament or the government or the people that got in the way. The army was equated with tyranny and power. The colonists carried their fears to the new world. This was a violent environment. There were battles with Indians. Uh, They felt unmoored, unconstrained. The country was wide open. They didn't know who was who or what was what in our frontier. British soldiers were posted everywhere to enforce British law on the colonists. Uh, The Boston Massacre occurred in 1770. This were Soldiers fired on some citizens, and the Boston Tea Party, 1773, which was revolting against um, uh, the um, presence of of the the soldiers. Uh, This is, of course, before the Revolution. So I guess they had a right to be there, but there was a big backlash. A subsequent military crackdown on the colonists was the last straw, and therefore the Declaration of uh, Independence in 1776. Okay, the Constitution um, was uh, completed in 1787. Uh, there was some discussion about these basic rights. Uh, they're not included in the Constitution. They wanted to save them for another time. And so 1791, the Bill of Rights uh, was added to the, the Constitution, and that's where the, uh, the, the amendments uh, are. And one of them is numero dos. <laughs> and this is what it says. A well-regulated militia as being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what's interesting about this, they say that it's not 
it's not well written. But there's two things there. I've heard a lot about gun deaths, but nothing about a, a militia. So the idea was to be able to keep and bear arms to form a militia for future threats. Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, who wrote the Constitution, along with some others, opposed this at that Constitutional Convention in 1787. They wanted a standing army. George Washington, a great general, had seen militia volunteers run and be ineffective. But again, the public was afraid of standing armies. They had state militias. So that's a little bit of understanding of where we got started with this, and here we are many years later. Where do we go from here, Beth? What, what's the first time that we see um, uh, problems with people owning guns or maybe just legislation? I mean, I'm thinking the Civil War was a standing army kind of against more of a militia. The South wasn't quite as organized, but was it Prohibition? Well, machine guns. <laughs> I mean, really, from the beginning, there were restrictions. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, you gave a great history. I actually teach a gun policy scholars mm-hmm. class, and one of the things we talk about is the history of oh, the good. Second Amendment. And you provided some some useful context around the belief um, in uh, in a standing uh, or in a militia as opposed to a standing army, mm-hmm. um, because as you alluded to, there was a real um, sort of paranoia about the idea of a standing army because of the history that mm-hmm. uh, the colonists were escaping where armies were often turned on the people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is the, the Second Amendment, um, you know, the founding fathers were not necessarily concerned with an individual or personal right to firearms. Um, Rather, uh, they envisioned a society where all citizens were part of a militia and all citizens in the militia were armed. Um, However, even the founding fathers supported restrictions on the Second Amendment. For example, the 18th century laws rarely allowed African Americans to have weapons, um, and even uh, rarer uh, was was the uh, possibility of African American slaves to be allowed to have them, for okay. reasons that probably are obvious. Um, the laws made clear that white Americans should be armed so that they could maintain control over non-whites. Um, but even as it pertained to whites, gun control... Um, was still an integral part of early American life. Um, although muskets, which were the primary weapon for militia services, were largely unregulated, there were very strict re- regulations on concealed weapons and ammunition storage. Um, there were also mandated weapons inspections and even loyalty oaths that were required to um, to have access to okay. guns. So from the beginning, um, you know, there's, I think, sort of a, a sense that people have that in the beginning, everybody just was running around with guns and everybody thought that was great and there weren't any problems. Um, but the reality is, even from the beginning, there were regulations and restrictions around guns. I bet it was hard to conceal a musket. <laughs> One would assume. <laughs> although, I don't know, maybe you wear those giant dusters and you can get creative. Um but, you know, I don't know. And, of course, you know, we've all seen the, the Westerns and whatnot where you're mm-hmm. required to check your guns, um, you know, at the, at the city limits. And people okay. understood that, you know, you have uh, folks carrying guns and they go to the saloon and they knock back a couple of drinks and then they get in a fight and then you have a, a shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, so even back then there was an understanding that 
guns were not necessarily, um, it wasn't necessarily the best idea for everybody to have a gun on them at all times. Mm -hmm. But we see the Westerns on TV and there, you know, nothing really happens. There's no consequences uh, of any you know, in any sort. So Well, and of, I mean, you know, I think you could also say, I mean, back then, like, um, I mean, not that that life has not always been value, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was sort of a different time back then. I mean, mm-hmm. people had duels and they shot each other right, and, like, right. you know, they didn't really care about it, um, which is a whole other issue, I guess. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, from the beginning, there were always regulations because, you know, there was always an understanding that guns in the wrong hands, whether it's uh, somebody who shouldn't have a gun or somebody who'd been drinking, um, guns in the wrong hands could be problematic. Okay, okay. So what's kind of the first, in, in your research, kind of the first either attempt at some restraint or actually, I mean, did we have a period where everyone was in, in agreement of... Well, what's interesting is between 1888 and 1960, every single law review article written on the Second Amendment rejected an individual or personal rights interpretation. Okay. Um, so, you know, for for hundreds of years, there was an understanding that the Second Amendment did really just pertain to uh, militias. Um, uh, in 1934, the National Firearms Act and later the Supreme Court uh, decision in U.S. v. Miller, um, which concludes that Congress could ban um, sawed-off shotguns because that weapon was of no use in a well-regulated militia, refor- reinforced that consensus okay. opinion. Okay. Um, and then, um, and interestingly, the National Firearms Act in 1934 and then later in 1938 um which were the two first key pieces of gun control legislation that were ever passed, um, they were supported and led by the National Rifle Association. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Um, the National Rifle Association uh, president um, felt very strongly about um, gun restrictions. Um, he stated that he had not given any thought to whether or not the, uh, the 1934 bill violated the Constitution and later wrote that the right to personal firearms could not be found in the Constitution. Um, and during the hearings for that particular piece of legislation, uh, he also testified, and this is a quote, um, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I seldom carry one. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under license. So that was um, the thinking in 1934 um, around gun uh, gun laws, and that was that was a statement made by the president of the National Rifle Association, okay. who were in the beginning um, really the leaders of the gun control movement. Wow! <laughs> what happened? Well, that's a whole other conversation we can get into. But, um, you know, the National Rifle Association originally was founded following the Civil War um, by U.S. soldiers who noted that their southern, uh, that the, the soldiers in the south were had, had much better aim and were better marksmen. And so the uh, some of the former um, soldiers in the Civil War, the U.S. soldiers, um, decided to start the NRA to focus on marksmanship and gun safety and, you know, basic, uh, you know, your basic 
dad and grandpa learning how to... I was going to say kind of a hobby. Hobby, uh-huh. yeah. Target shooting, hunting, um, with a very strong emphasis on safety. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing having to do with gun rights, nothing having to do with, um, you know, kind of what we now think of the NRA. I mean, it really was just sort of a hobby organization for people who enjoyed collecting firearms and, and hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that changed in the 70s. Um, during what is known as the Cincinnati Revolt, which was the NRA convention. Um, I forget the exact date, but it was in the mid to late 70s. And and what had happened is in 1968, there was a gun control act passed um, that uh, the NRA uh, was uh, part of, but not quite as actively a part of, um, but that did create a lot of the restrictions that we have now in terms of what we consider prohibited purchasers, um, you know, people who are felons, people who've been dishonorably discharged from the military, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill in a court of law and involuntarily committed, so on and so forth. Um, a lot of those prohibitions came from the Gun Control Act of 1968. Um, So what happened as a result of that is that began to create some tension within the NRA, and you had um, a certain contingency of uh, NRA members who were content for the NRA to remain as it was, focused on gun safety and target shooting and not at all involved in politics. Um, But then you had another faction that did want to get more involved in politics and really did uh, see an opportunity Mm -hmm. to leverage their membership um, to be an effective lobbying organization and to pass um, uh, laws related or to, um, I'm sorry, not pass laws, but to, um, to make it easier. Yeah. To, um, for more people to carry more guns and, and really to go at more of a gun rights angle. Um, and so there was a, uh, essentially a coup, um, at the NRA convention and the pro gun rights side won. And that, became the NRA that we know now, which is a very powerful lobbying organization that really, um, you know, one definition, one interpretation of what the NRA does could could be that they are advocates for gun rights. Um, But then, you know, another interpretation could be that they're really more of a lobbying arm for the firearms uh, manufacturing industry um, and ammunition because many of their board members... um, you know, are executives at firearm manufacturers. So it financially benefits them to see gun rights expanded and to kind of create this idea that everybody needs to have a gun, everybody needs to run out and buy a gun, because when everybody goes out and buys guns, these executives make money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course we know the other side of it is that people are shot. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, interestingly, I, I, you know, I don't mean to be cynical, but I am a... A woman of a certain age, and I've been around a long time, and you really realize how much greed um, drives a lot of policy making. Um, And with the gun rights, um, you know, there's a lot, uh, with the NRA especially, I mean, a lot of greed is is involved. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made. The executives at the NRA, they've been in the news a lot lately um, for, you know, raking in you know millions of, of dollars um the the people that sit on their board make a lot of money from selling guns there's a lot of money to be made um but i can tell you that people that are on my side there is no there's no financial incentive to do 
this work. We have no greed incentive. We are in, incentivized only um, by the possibility of reducing the number of people whose lives are impacted by gun violence. Mm-hmm. So um, in federal legislation, kind of since that split, um, have we had some breakthroughs in... Uh, well, since 1968, uh, the yes, um, we in 1993 the Brady uh, background check bill was passed and signed into law. And what that legislation did, um, that legislation is still in place now. Um, and what it uh, does is it says that anybody who is purchasing a firearm from a licensed dealer um, must undergo a background check. Uh, a licensed dealer means somebody who it has what is called a federal firearms license or an FFL. Sometimes it's just shorthand. Somebody will just be referred to as an FFL, okay. which means a person that has a federal firearms license. Uh, FFLs can be, um, you know, the, Na- the Nashville Armory that is a gun store. An FFL can be a pawn shop that sells firearms. An FFL can be Academy Sports. An FFL can be a licensed Walmart. vendor, uh, can be Walmart, um, and it, uh, you know, uh, Bass Pro Shops. Um, but an FFL is also um, a, a vendor at a, at a gun show. Um, to be uh, a, an FFL, you have to be uh, engaged in the business, which is a, a term of art. It's a legal term, engaged in the business of firearm sales, which means that, you know, you uh, dedicate a, a, a significant chunk of your life to that which sort of separates you out from being a hobbyist but all that to say i bring that up because when people talk about the gun show loophole mm-hmm. people will say oh well you ha- you have to you have to undergo a background check if you buy a gun at a gun show which is true if you buy a gun from one of the licensed vendors that's mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. um however you do not have to be a licensed vendor to just walk around at a gun show with a gun that says for sale on it Um, You do not have to be a licensed vendor to be out in the parking lot um, just hanging out with guns in your trunk that you're willing to sell. So when we talk about closing the gun show loophole, what we're talking about is closing the loophole that allows people to buy guns at gun shows from people who are not licensed dealers and therefore circumventing the the background check system. So to do that, what it might look like would be... um, Officers or ATF officials or something walking around and saying "move on" or giving uh, citations. Uh, giving or, citations, yeah, uh, you know, would be what what you would like to to see. Yeah, that they um, would be ticketed some way with a fine or a penalty. Absolutely, and three strikes your. Absolutely. Right. And and we're not seeing that. No, we're not not seeing that. And in fact, I am a gun owner myself. I purchased my gun at a gun show from a random stranger who was not a licensed dealer who sold me a handgun for $200 in cash. Um, He did not ask whether or not I was allowed to have guns, if I was under an order of protection, if I was... Uh, had been adjudicated mentally ill if I was a felon uh, none of that or if um, he didn't notice that you were wearing a straight jacket or <laughs> nothing nothing <laughs> of the sort and I was actually with a friend of mine who was a district attorney at the time and we sort of did an experiment where we went to a gun show to see how easy it would be to buy a gun without a background check 
Um, and she bought a shotgun and I bought a handgun. We were in and out of the gun show in less than half an hour. That's mm-hmm. how long it took mm-hmm. uh, to find uh, the, the, the sellers and make deals with them. Now, my friend who is a district attorney, um, you know, I, ma- I made her swear to me that we were not breaking the law. Uh, and she confirmed that we were not. And in fact, after we made our purchases, we went up to a police officer. We did not necessarily disclose to him that we had just purchased guns. But what we said to him is, hey, we've noticed that there are people who are not licensed vendors who are selling guns. And he said, well, that's perfectly legal. And we said, so so you can just buy a gun from just a stranger like that that's not one of the vendors that's licensed and he said absolutely in the state Mm -hmm. of Tennessee that's completely legal so So that that practice needs to be criminalized I would say that it does because what we learned and what my friend who is a district attorney um, shared uh, is you know the number of cases that she just herself has prosecuted that involve felons whose guns that they use to commit crimes were traced back to purchases made at um, at, at gun shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was an interview that was done by an investigative reporter here in Nashville um, on Channel 5 where they interviewed an incarcerated gang member and they asked him where he obtained his weapons and he said, oh, we got almost all of our guns at the gun show. Um, if you have cash, you'll find somebody there that will sell you the guns, no questions asked. Um, and it's a lot easier to buy guns at a gun show than it is to buy them off the street. How about online sales? So online sales um, is 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 a different uh, animal. So what we mean when we talk about online sales, people will say, "Well, you can't buy guns online," which is true. You can't go to uh, Bass Pro Shops and find a nine millimeter that you want and buy it and then have it shipped to you. That is true. That is not uh, allowed. However, what you can do is go to websites like ArmsList.com, which operates like a Craigslist for guns. In fact, it was started after Craigslist prohibited sales of uh, guns and ammunition on their website. Um, But what ArmsList does, it operates like a Craigslist. So you say, okay, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm interested in an AR-15, and you search and you will see um, the guns that are being offered for sale will, will come up in your search. And some of them are offered um, by, um, by uh, um, licensed dealers. You know, the same way like if you go on Craigslist, if you're looking at something um, that you want to buy, sometimes it's being sold by a licensed dealer and sometimes it's just being sold by an individual. Most of the guns on arms list are being sold by private individuals. Um, so you would go, you would say, okay, I want an AR-15, and you would find one, and you know maybe they're saying that they want $900 in cash for it, and you go, okay, that's a good deal. So you correspond with them the same way you would on Craigslist. You email back and forth, you negotiate a price, you negotiate a place to meet, you meet the person there, you give them cash, and they give you the firearm. And there is no background check, there is no record of that sale, um, and, and that's the extent of it. Now, to be fair, most people who use armsless.com are not criminals that are trying to circumvent the background check system. There are people like me who are bargain shoppers, right, who are looking to save some money, which is understandable. Um, And I don't necessarily have a problem with people who want to bargain shop, who don't want to buy brand new weapons at full price. But what we would like to see is that when you are setting up a private sale, that there is a requirement to then go to an FFL and 
have that FFL conduct a background check before that sale is completed. Mm-hmm. That's what what states that have passed expanded background checks. Okay. That's what they generally do. And so they would like monitor the Craigslist or whatever that guns were. They would have a way to see that a gun was being sold. And well, I mean, it would still, to some degree, probably I rely on, on the honor system. Um, but let's say you and I connected. It's armslist.com, and we connected, and we figured out that you wanted to buy a gun from me, um, that we would be required by law to go to an FFL and conduct a background check. And if we were somehow found to have been in violation of that, we would be subject to um, a criminal charge. Okay. Um, the other thing the other thing I wanted to ask about was um, uh, a law about the military-style weapons. Right. And what was that called? Because I think it so expired. It did. did. It not? So, so 1993, we passed background checks. And in 1994... Um, Congress passed the uh, the assault weapons ban. Okay. Um, and so for ten years, um, uh, military what we would call you know the the, the assault weapons, assault rifles, uh, military style rifles, tactical rifles. Um, ammunition was not necessarily okay. part okay. of that. It was just the the weapon. Um, and uh, for ten years, um, sale of that type of weapon was prohibited under law. Now, what is interesting about assault weapons, um, you know, Safe Tennessee, my organization, we do not advocate for an assault weapons ban. Um, Okay. Not necessarily because we don't think that, um, not because we think that that's necessarily bad policy, but because this is Tennessee, and we know that, that that type of legislation would never get anywhere. Um, and also, um, you know, the, 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 the issue with assault weapons or military-style rifles is that they are used in a fraction of... Oh, okay. um, they just make the headlines. Yes, and they make the headlines because they kill a lot of people in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, they are certainly the weapon of choice uh, for most mass shooters for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that makes uh, that type of firearm especially lethal is the fact that you don't necessarily have to be the best shot mm-hmm. um, to kill somebody. In fact, I have been working closely with one of the families of um, one of the Waffle House victims. Mm-hmm. Um, Aquila Da Silva was that young man's name, and he was at Waffle House with his brother and his girlfriend um, and, and, and other folks, too. There were four people, four lives that were taken that night. But Aquila sustained um, a gunshot wound to his shoulder mm-hmm. um, and was alert, was conscious, uh, at the time of the shooting, was conscious in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, but he ultimately bled out and and died um, because of the damage the bullet um, the bullet did, mm-hmm. um, and that is why those weapons were designed the way that they were designed. I mean, they were designed for the military. The only difference, uh, ostensibly, between um, a weapon that a soldier would carry. Um, and uh, the kind of weapon that you could go buy at, uh, you know, a gun store is um, semi-automatic or fully automatic. Fully automatic, which is what soldiers, what military uh, carry, uh, allow you to flip a switch and go fully automatic, which means you just hold the trigger down and it will just rapid fire. Semi-automatic just means that you just have to pull the trigger. So it's... Mm-hmm. 
the same weapon. It's just the the, the difference in how quickly you can fire. But um, as we know from the body counts of so many of the mass shootings that we're all so painfully familiar with, um, you can pull the trigger a lot pretty quickly in a very short amount of time and 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 injure and kill a lot of people Mm -hmm. um but uh you know what's interesting is during the assault weapons ban that 10-year period um the number of high casualty mass shootings uh did go down Mm -hmm. considerably Mm -hmm. and when you look at the worst mass shootings in our country's history um, the only one, there was only one, I can't remember which one it was, but there was only, I think it was Columbine mm-hmm. um, that occurred during that period that was a, you know, what we would call like a high, uh, you know, high casualty mm-hmm. mass mm-hmm. shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of the high casualty mass shootings have unfortunately happened in the last several years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know um, since, uh, well, recent, I don't know how, well, let's let's just take Sandy Hook on um, so that's going on seven years whenever whenever one happens and we even have some this week mm-hmm. right um, the government response the federal response is uh, prayers and thoughts right. and there a lot of criticism for that um, so you know what's kind of going on now it just kind of seems to be that i mean what's what's your opinion of there uh i had bought an article uh, to show to show beth um about the justice department um attorney general william barr uh i was um kind of upset with him because uh he was using the impeachment as a um Excuse for nothing being done. Uh, this was on day one of the the hearings, but I I felt that uh, there seemed to be a lot of time <laughs> before this past week uh, to get some things done. Do you want to just kind of talk about where you feel like the response is right sure. now? Well, with this, to start, I will echo what you said, which is that I think that blaming the what's going on with impeachment for the fact that nothing's being done on guns is um is a canard it's a red herring and it's um it's just not true i mean for one the house passed um a number of bills related to preventing gun violence um in january Mm -hmm. and those bills have been sitting in the senate Senate. waiting for a vote uh for you know going on a year now Mm -hmm. and there may be stuff going on related to impeachment but at present all of that's going on in the House, and so the Senate uh, could be taking up these bills, and they're mm-hmm. and they're not. And well, and they haven't. And uh, the the head of the Senate has said that nothing nothing would pass. It's been so long; I don't remember why, but just well. And it's the you know the thing that's frustrating. And and I read the article that that you brought, and you know what we see is that when there is a mass shooting. Um, and first, let me just take a step back and point out that mm-hmm. there are mass shootings in this country every single day. Mm-hmm. We define a mass shooting as any single incident where four or more people are shot in a single uh, at, at a, in a single incident. Um, and those happen every day. They just don't always make the news. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times they are murder-suicides. They are fights that break out in a parking lot. Um 
Uh, a lot of them are domestic violence in in nature, but those happen every day. But the the what I what we would call a spectacle shooting, which are the shootings mm-hmm. that happen in very public places and injure or kill um, a lot of people. When those happen, you know, we sort of see this predictable cycle, which is they happen. People offer thoughts and prayers. Um, people all say something needs to be done. And then people on my side of the issue start renewing our calls for um, gun law reform, evidence-based gun law reform, Mm -hmm. Um, gun law reform that incidentally is favored by the vast majority of Americans, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, depending on the particular policy, you know, we're talking anywhere from like 85 to 95 percent of Americans supporting things like expanding background checks or extreme risk protection orders or things around strengthening uh, dispossession related to domestic violence offenders, things like that. Um, We start talking about those types of issues. The other side starts talking about mental health. And video games. And video games. And... uh, Which has no basis. No basis. It's not... There's no factual tie, especially to video games or music or pharmaceuticals or broken families or, you know, people not going to church enough. Um, You know, every country in the world has people who suffer from mental illness. Every country in the world has young people who listen to video games who listen or who play video games who listen to music that their parents and their elders find offensive um you know every single country has people uh has broken families has people that don't go to church Mm -hmm. enough or go to church too much you know whatever every country has those same challenges but only in america do we have these mass shootings um and, you know, regarding the, 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 the pivot, always the pivot to mental illness, um, the reality is, and you can, you know, if you don't believe me, you can, there's research out there that backs us up and you can talk to any mental health uh, care provider out there, a psychologist, psychiatrist, social workers, um, the vast majority of people who have a mental illness um, are not violent. They're not violent in any way. And the reality is they are at a much greater risk of having violence perpetrated on them. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, I understand, I get it. It's a, it's a human inclination. Somebody does something terrible and you're, you think that person must be quote-unquote crazy to do something terrible um, because nobody wants to acknowledge that somebody who was it not be, crazy... It could be you. It could it, be me. Exactly. And what we know, um, and again, I study this, I work with researchers who study this, is that, for one, um, you know, most, most of these mass shooters are not under the care of a mental health uh, mm-hmm. provider. Um, so even if they did have some type of mental illness, it's not diagnosed. Um, secondly, um, you know, being an angry, uh, what I call a collector of grievances, mm-hmm. um, is not a diagnosed mental disorder. Mm -hmm. Being misogynist, being racist, um, being somebody who can listen to hyperbolic language and get um, angry about that and feel compelled to act on it, Mm -hmm. um, that is not necessarily a diagnosed mental disorder. Um, However, it is it does fit a profile that we tend to see with a lot of these, you know, sort of spectacle mass shooters. Um, 
is, uh, you know, a history of anger management problems, um, a history of misogyny, with some of them a history of, of, of racism. Um, you know, these sort of what we would call predictors of, of gun violence, these types of things, and substance abuse is also a, is another mm-hmm. one. Um, those are the types of things that can help us predict who is likely to commit gun violence. And to add a, a gun to the mix. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's make an action plan. Okay. And I'm going to say number one, go to Safe Tennessee Project, all one word, all spelled out, dot org, and read and read and read. There are such so many great things that it just um, it just cycles through um, articles and statistics and things like that. Sign up for the newsletters, volunteer if you can. Um, news again, keep up with the news and the website. Use your critical thinking. Avoid hysteria. Um, Beth, what's your top couple of things besides writing? Your website really makes it easy to to write. Once things get going, she just sends you call call here. There's a number. Yes. Say this or yes. click here, and a letter will be sent. Well, we try so. and make it easy for people mm-hmm. because I understand. It's, it's you know, easy. I'm very busy. Uh, a lot of us are very busy, and I try to um, make it as easy as possible for people to take action by providing them with bullet points of whatever a particular issue is, um, as well as an easy way to contact your um, your policymakers, whether they be your member of Congress or your senators at the federal level or your legislators at the state level. Um, Two other things I would mention just uh, at the federal level that people might be interested in in following along with. There are two real important legal cases that are um, kind of in the news right now. One is that um, the Supreme Court has um, decided not to take up a case. uh, Well, it's it's a long, complicated legal story, but the, the families of the Sandy Hook victims have filed a lawsuit against Remington. Um... Uh, and what's really going to be interested, and 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 the uh, and and they're going to be able to proceed with the case is the is the short version of what I was trying to get at, um, and that is related to a piece of legislation that we call PLACA, which stands for. Um, uh, it's probably in your news article. I call it PLACA so much I forget what it actually stands for. But uh, uh, the the gist of the the original legislation. Oh, uh, Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. Okay. So what it means is that you can't uh, sue um, a firearms manufacturer if somebody does something bad with, with their gun. Which, to be honest, I don't necessarily disagree with that, okay? You can't necessarily sell or sue, uh, you know, a gun manufacturer if somebody buys a gun and then uses it to hurt someone. But what their case is, the novel approach that they're taking, is how the firearms were marketed. Right. Mm-hmm. And what we have been interested in for a long time is what we hope to find out during the discovery process of this case, which is internal documents related to how they marketed um, these these military-style Weapons. So that's going to be a very interesting case to follow. The other interesting case that's coming up is the Supreme Court is taking up um, on December 2nd um, a case that pertains to um, a, uh, and I should, 
I should have gotten the name straight before I brought it up, but it's like the New York State Pistol and Rifle Association, I think, um, in New York City. Um, New York has very strict gun laws. So a number of years ago, New York State and New York City got very intentional about uh, strengthening their gun laws to reduce um, crime in their in their city and in their state. And they've been very effective. Gun violence in New York is a fraction of what it is in a state like Tennessee. Um New York also doesn't have preemption, which means cities can pass their own ordinances. So in the city of New York, uh, they have very strict gun laws, and this case is basically challenging. It's it's complicated, and I would urge your listeners to just go and kind of read up on it. But uh, what this case would do is sort of challenge that, uh, that preemption or that lack of preemption, that ability for a city to create um, their own firearm legislation. So okay. that case is going to be taken up on December 2nd, and okay. it's, it's, I believe, the first gun case the Supreme Court has taken up in uh, a really, really long time. So it's going to be very interesting to see how arguments go with that case and then ultimately what the Supreme Court decides. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. I'll, so put I, that on the, I'll put that on the little summary, uh, all, all of these things on the summary for that. That'd be podcast. great because really like in terms of taking action, what I always tell our volunteers and certainly the young people, we teach classes to young people about public policy and firearms policy mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. to be an effective advocate, you have to do your homework. Right, right? right. So you have to really read up on these cases, understand them. You have to understand sort of the history of the Second Amendment, why it was written. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we didn't even really talk about, but that I would urge your listeners to look into, and there's information about this on our website, but um, uh, to look up the Heller decision, H-E-L-L-E-R decision, which was a Supreme Court case in 2008. And it was that decision that uh, ultimately conferred the individual right to keep and bear arms. Um, And it was a very controversial decision. People on my side of the issue saw it as as a loss. Obviously, in the gun rights side, saw it as a big win. But what's very interesting about the Heller decision, um, Antonin Scalia penned the majority decision uh, the the majority opinion, um, you know, and Scalia was certainly uh, no liberal gun grabber. Okay, <laughs> uh, he was very pro Second Amendment, but he did include language in that opinion that made it very clear, gave states a lot of latitude about what they could do. Uh, there was certain language in the in the decision mm-hmm. that you know basically said nothing in this decision should be taken as, you know, this idea that anybody, that any person can carry any gun, any place for whatever purpose. Mm -hmm. And I bring that up again because that particular Supreme Court decision has been used um, to uphold uh, assault weapons bans. There are several states that have assault weapons bans, Maryland being one Mm -hmm. of them, Massachusetts, uh, and a couple of others. And they have been challenged at the federal level. And each time the court has used the Heller decision to say that, you know, those states do have. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, um, again, there's a lot to learn. All of that information is on our website. There's lots of of research, peer-reviewed, published research that I would urge people to to take a look at um, to become better informed about the issue. Right, right. Good. We're going to talk about Tennessee in our next uh, uh, podcast, but I just wanted to kind of close us up with a, a bit of a summary uh, and, and, and one thing that we really didn't talk a, a lot about, but I'll include it in here. So it's been 228 years since the Second Amendment was ratified, 243 years since the Declaration of Independence. 
We do have a standing army of one and a half million active mm-hmm. duty personnel that if they turned on us, and some people believe that they could. Well, and some people believe that we need to, everybody needs to have guns in case we need to right. fight right. off the military. But the military could obliterate the citizens of this country and probably a couple others um, if they wanted. And right. you talk to a military person about that. They don't like to hear that. They they are not going to do that. Of course, of course. So what are we afraid of? I think, I think we're afraid of each other. Um, could the colonists, the founding fathers, have imagined our country today? Powerful weapons turned against one another, including our children, many times for no apparent reason. So join us. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. Um, Join us uh, for the next podcast, What About Us? Gun Safety in Tennessee. Thank you.